Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension. This is Naked Astronomy. Hello, welcome to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford. Coming up this month, the spacecraft which are being sent to the moon to test new technology. We ask how it could be possible to find evidence for historical life forms on Mars that may have died out billions of years ago. And we hear about the software which is linking together home computers around the world to do radio astronomy. Plus, as always, we've got more answers to your space science questions. If you've got something you'd like us to tackle, you can email astronomy at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on Facebook. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Earlier this month, I travelled to the European Planetary Science Congress, which brought together astronomers from around Europe for a week at University College London, discussing the latest observations of the solar system's planets. Of course, the red planet Mars has been in the news lately because of the superb images that the Curiosity rover has been returning from its surface. But in his talk, Lewis Dartnell from the University of Leicester was looking further ahead, talking about the preparations for the European Space Agency's forthcoming ExoMars mission, which will hopefully be touching down on the Martian surface in 2018. So what we think with Mars is it's once been a very, very Earth-like place. I mean, we see a lot of evidence for ancient rivers and, and lakes. The problem with Mars now, today, billions of years later, after this ancient sign of a habitable environment, is the entire planet has suffered some kind of environmental catastrophe. And the environmental conditions across the whole world on Mars have deteriorated. So it's no longer a, a lovely, warm, wet place that would have been suitable for life to get emerged and then evolve over a long period of time. It's a very dry desiccating, kind of freeze-dried desert environment. So Mars today is very, very hard for life to survive on on the surface. And what we're looking for are the signs of ancient life, primordial life, that might be preserved in the rocks, waiting for us to come along with our rovers and dig up and find. What makes us think that Mars might have been different in the past? So it's down to the evidence of the landforms that we can see with our satellites. We've basically got spy satellites orbiting Mars now, taking incredibly high-resolution paparazzi zoom lens type photos of mars and we see a whole diversity of different landforms that suggest this warmer wetter environment and we see a lot of things which are clearly 
snaking rivers, meandering rivers, and places where there's been like a delta as the river kind of enters into like a lake or something and dumps all of its sediment. We see all this, all, the, all this evidence, but we no longer see water on the face of Mars. At least not liquid water, although there is a lot of ice still on the surface around the poles, as polar ice caps. And the important thing for life on Mars, for astrobiology, is how long is that water on Mars liquid and therefore suitable and available for life? Uh, what window of opportunity did life have to get started? What were the chemical conditions in that water? Were they conducive for life or were they perhaps too acidic or too salty? And these are all the questions we're trying to answer right now with our robots, with our robotic explorers that we're sending to Mars, basically equipped and bristling with lots of different bits of kit and instruments and equipment to test Mars in different ways and, and tell us as much as we can about the environment on this other world as we explore it. How are you going about looking for evidence that there was life billions of years ago on that surface? Well, it's a very, very similar question to trying to find the earliest signs of life on our own home world, on Earth, and trying to date that first emergence of cells on Earth. And we use very, very similar techniques. We're hoping to use very similar techniques on Mars and look for the telltale quirks of the chemistry that's left behind, perhaps even billions of years after that life has fallen extinct or died. And so we're looking for quirks of biochemistry, as distinct from geochemistry, the chemistry of the rocks that are dead and still there, and trying to find that kind of smoking gun from life. But could those molecules still be there four billion years after they were in organisms? Well, what we know from looking in similar situations on Earth, that some things are very recalcitrant, they stick around for long periods of time. Things like DNA aren't, they break down very rapidly. But there are other signs of life that we'd be looking for, and we leave behind telltale signatures to do with the ratio of different isotopes between, for example, carbon-12 or carbon-13. And life leaves behind a particular indicator in that ratio of carbon isotopes, for example, that it was once there. Or if you find very simple molecules like amino acids, all life on Earth uses left-handed amino acids, one of two possibilities. And if we go to Mars and we find amino acids, it doesn't mean life itself, but it does tell us at least the building blocks, the Lego bricks for making life were there. But if we go to Mars and we find amino acids and we also realise that they're all either left-handed variety or the right-handed variety, we've got a, a good, unambiguous signal that there was life that's kind of degraded and left behind those amino acids. People talk about the radiation environment on the surface of Mars, the ultraviolet light, the solar wind particles that bombard that surface, breaking apart those molecules. How far do you have to dig down to expect to find them? Yes, this is the particular focus of my research and the cosmic radiation environment on Mars, which is a big issue for sending human astronauts to Mars and not having them die on the way. And it's also a big issue for astrobiology and finding life that perhaps is still alive but dormant in the surface of Mars or trying to work out how long those signs of life stick around for before they're rubbed out and degraded or erased by this radiation. And some of the computer simulation work, some of the modelling work I've been doing, gives us answers to what that kind of radiation environment is like, what kind of dose rates you get from the radiation and the top couple of metres. And this is particularly important for a mission we're launching to Mars to look for signs of life in 2018 called the ExoMars rover. Because for the first time ever, we're sending a robot to Mars with a proper length drill. It's got a two-metre drill bit. And up until now, we've scooped around on the surface dust with a little robotic arm, or the NASA Curiosity rover at the moment is basically sticking its little finger, a tiny, short little, couple of inches long drill into the surface of rocks. And what we really want to do is get a proper arm's length underground and then get stuff from deeper underground on Mars where it's been protected from all this radiation for long periods of time and then analyse it and scrutinise that Martian soil to look for these signs of life that might be there.
you're working with an instrument called a Raman spectrometer. What does that do? So Raman is a very neat piece of kit, and it's used in lots of different applications on Earth. It's very tried and tested. And if you've ever been through the airport and gone through the metal detector and maybe get pulled to one side and they kind of swab you down your bag and then put it into a box to look for signs of explosives, that box they put into, that piece of kit, is a Raman spectrometer. So it can pick up signs of molecules indicative of explosives. And it's also very, very good at picking up the organic molecules or signs of life. And it's proven itself time and time again to be incredibly sensitive to find very trace amounts of bacterial life and microbial life in some of the most hostile and extreme places on Earth, like the dry valleys in Antarctica and the South Pole, or the Atacama Desert, one of the driest deserts on Earth, which is in South America. And for the first time ever, we're taking a Raman spectrometer to Mars, aboard ExoMars, to apply it to a new question, which is can we find signs of Martian life on the surface or on the top metre or two with a drill? I'm right in thinking you've just got results back from some tests with a Raman spectrometer to see how sensitive it might be. Some of the work I've been presenting here at this Europlanet conference in London this week is tests I've run on a Raman spectrometer. So not obviously the exact same one that we'll be sending to Mars, but a similar one. And looking at a particular molecule that's very widespread amongst microbial life, which are carotenoids. They help to protect and shield cells from various kinds of damage. And what I've been looking at is how that signature of the carotenoids in different kinds of cells stands up to the radiation, how quickly is that fingerprint of these molecules in the Raman spectrum degraded and erased and destroyed by radiation? And therefore, what kind of timescales we can talk about for finding remnant extinct life on Mars? So ExoMars is launching to Mars in 2018, but what are you really looking forward to in the next decade or so of Mars exploration? What we are ideally looking forward towards as planetary explorers and astrobiologists is the kind of next stepping stone after missions like Curiosity and ExoMars, which we, we basically miniaturise an entire laboratory, slap some wheels on, give it a nuclear or a, a radioisotope power generator or solar panels, drive it around and look at different samples. But what we really want to be able to do is pick some choice samples from Mars and then bring them all the way back to Earth, because we've not done that deliberately yet. Although we've got a few samples of the Martian surface from meteorites, we want to pick the ones that we think got the best chance of having life in, because then what you get to do is scrutinise and study those samples of Mars with all of the laboratories all the way around the world with some of the most high-tech, best-equipped bits of instrumentation to find those trace signs of life that we think might be in there. And this is called a Mars sample return mission, and that will be hopefully coming up in, in the coming decades. That will hopefully happen within my career. Lewis Dartnell from the University of Leicester talking to me at the European Planetary Science Congress in London. Later in the week, the Red Planet was once again the focus of debate, as researchers from Kent University speculated whether the life that we see on Earth could, in fact, have originated on Mars. Now, that may sound like a far-fetched idea, but some recent research has indicated that the environment on Mars billions of years ago may actually have been better suited to forming complex organic molecules than that on the early Earth. Earlier in the month, for example, Professor Stephen Benner from the Westheimer Institute for Science and Technology in the United States, spoke at a conference in Florence to say that the metal molybdenum, which is present in Mars's crust but not on the Earth's, may have been crucial to the origin of life. I spoke to Dina Pacini from Kent University. There's been recent research that suggests the conditions needed to formulate life in the first place were not present on Earth when life was supposed to have formed, but they were present on Mars. However, that's still quite speculative at the moment. 
And the point of my research is not necessarily to prove whether or not we do come from another planet, but at least to prove that the possibility that we could have done is there. What would be the mechanism for that life to move through the solar system? Well, the main mechanism is a giant impact of an asteroid or a cometary body impacting the surface. And if it has enough energy, it'll lift a lot of material, much of which could have life on it. And that could be lifted right up into space, and then it will naturally float through space for, I think, the optimum time is about 16 million years before it would then impact and hit the Earth. And we've got several Martian meteorites on the Earth that we know of today, so we know the process does happen. It sounds like a challenging process for life to survive, though, because you've got the heat and the energy dissipation of the impact, then you've got the vacuum of deep space, and then you've got this meteor landing on Earth. Yes, so... The temperatures are not too much of a problem because the initial impact temperatures are over in just nanoseconds for the organism, so it feels very little. But the temperature, when coming through an atmosphere on the Earth, you know, when you see a shooting star, you see the big bright ball, Uh, but that's only the top few layers of a meteorite will actually get heated up during that process. So anything that's embedded deep within it won't necessarily feel any temperature fluctuation, at least not enough to kill it anyway. And as far as the impact process, the main thing it has to deal with is the pressures that are involved in the shock when it's lifted up and thrown down again. That's what my research has been testing to see if it can survive. And as for space, again, if it's frozen inside ice or embedded deep within rock, then the vacuum won't affect it in any way. And again, if it's frozen, which it will most likely be if it's going to go into space because it's rather cold, and so you'll expect it to be in a sort of hibernation state. So that's the main thing. Nothing would stay alive. It would have to be in some sort of frozen state in order to make the journey. What experiment have you been doing to probe whether life could possibly survive that impact? First, we have to actually prove that we can culture these organisms in the first place. So once that's done, we then froze them to see if they could survive being thawed out again and regrow again which they do and then we freeze them and put them into tiny pellets which we then fire in a two-stage gas gun to simulate the types of speeds that will be generated in an impact event and then we fire them into a bag of water which has some nutrients that they like to eat so give them the best possible chance of survival and then essentially it's a case of waiting and watching to see if they actually survive and of course this all has to be done in a sterile environment so that we don't get any contamination so anything we see that grows we know definitely came from what was fired in the gun and what sort of speeds are we talking about here uh, well, we started off quite low at about one, well, I say low, low in what we do is uh, one kilometre a second, and we went right up to seven kilometres a second. And the impacts that you would get onto the Martian surface would be, due to its natural gravity, would be about five kilometres a second. And on the Earth is about 11 kilometres a second if we don't have an atmosphere, but obviously we do, which slows things down. So you're talking about eight or nine kilometres a second on the Earth. So we're almost up to the range that you would expect for an impact onto the Earth. And did that life survive that impact? Yeah, we've seen survival every range that we've done so far. And as you might expect, the higher the speeds go, the higher the pressures go, the less life there seems to survive. Although we don't know if the survival rate is lower or whether it's the recovery time of the organism that's lower. That's something we haven't probed yet. But the definite trend is that the higher the speeds go, the longer it takes before we see any regrowth of material. I've got this picture in my head now of these bacteria being fired out of this gun at 10 kilometres per second and then sort of sitting dazed on the pavement when they land until they get to a point where they can start to breed. How realistic is that picture? Um, 
as a sort of mental image, yeah, that's essentially what is happening. Because of the massive shockwave that goes through the organism, it takes a long time for things to settle down inside the organism before it can actually get back to a state where it's able to reproduce. How long that takes, we don't know. That could be anything from just a few seconds right up to days or even weeks. We're not sure at the moment if the time delays we're seeing with the regrowth is due mainly to that or mainly to the surviving fractions that we see. We estimate it's probably to do with the amount of organisms that are surviving and less to do with the recovery time. But again, until we actually directly test for that, we won't know one way or the other. So I guess your conclusion from that is that this does look feasible, that life could potentially survive on a meteor coming from Mars. But this is quite hypothetical in that we don't have any strong evidence of where life may have started. What evidence are you looking to in the future to try and pin down where life came from? Well, like you say, we don't have much evidence where life originated from, and I'm not sure where we'd be able to look for that. I mean, if we found life on Mars, then we could look at it at a genetic level and see if we evolved from that or whether that evolved from us. Because, of course, the reverse is true. Any impacts on the Earth in the past could have lifted material up and taken it to Mars. That's one thing this research does open up. We have to check any potential alien life forms to make sure they really are alien and not just an offshoot of ourselves. And so... Essentially, the thing to do would be to find the earliest possible thing that every organism on Earth can be traced back to genetically, which is a lot easier said than done. So that's one of those rare one-off finds. We'll either find it or we won't. So we don't know whether that will happen. And if it does, I suspect someone will win a Nobel Prize. But to test where life actually came from, there's no real way of knowing until we actually do or don't find that thing. Of course, there's another possibility that life never even originated in this solar system. It could have originated five billion years earlier on another planet somewhere else in the galaxy and just took that long to travel here. But of course, the further out you go and the longer back you go, the less likely a scenario that is. My thanks to Dina Pessini from Kent University. Now, it's time to delve into Naked Astronomy's post bag, and Chloe has got in touch. She sent an email to astronomy at thenakedscientist.com to ask whether there were any astronomical sightings that can be made during the day. I put the question to Kirsten Goschalk from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Western Australia. Oh, heaps, Chloe. Great question. I have to say, there's, there's so many you can do. You don't even need a telescope. Obvious ones, of course, are you can see the sun and you can see the moon. They're both astronomical objects. And in fact, astronomers still study the sun in great detail all the time because there's still heaps we don't know about it. So they're the obvious ones. I guess a little less obvious is you can actually see Venus at points during the day with the naked eye. And then if you manage to get a telescope that's not super powerful and you use it very carefully, I mean, I'm going to point out here, please do not point a telescope towards the sun. If you have the opportunity, only do it if you have a special filter. But if you do have a telescope, you can look at Venus and you can see it as a crescent in the day sky, which is really cool. You can also see some of the brighter planets like Jupiter and Mercury and Mars, some of the bright stars like Sirius and Betelgeuse. Really, there's heaps you can see out there, and I'd recommend that your best option is to go and get a program that's free like Stellarium and have a look at it during the day and see where things are because you can set Stellarium to show you daytime and then see where things are, and then you can go out and see if you can see them. So what sort of equipment would you need to see, for example, Venus during the day? You'd probably be able to see it with a good set of binoculars even. 
You can see Venus during twilight and early morning as it's getting a bit darker or as it's going from night into day quite clearly with the naked eye. But if you want to see the crescent shape of it, then a pair of binoculars would do you best, I'd say. And I guess if you've got a go-to telescope that can find things automatically, then that's going to be a great help because it will find the object for you even if you can't see it with the naked eye. Exactly right. And then you've got heaps on offer because if you've got a go-to telescope that's maybe 8 inches or 10 inches, you're going to be able to see quite a few stars and objects out there even when it's daytime, as long as they're away from the sun. I guess that's a very important point to make because obviously pointing binoculars at the sun is a very bad idea. Extremely bad idea. Telescopes, if they don't have filters you'll burn your eye, binoculars the same. But not just that, if, say, Venus is within a few degrees, so I guess a few full moons of the sun, you're not going to be able to see it as well because the sun will still enter your binoculars or telescopes. So even though it might be safe, you're not going to see much. So it's probably best to only look at things that are in the opposite half of the sky to the sun. Kirsten Goshtalk, who we'll be returning to in just a moment. You're listening to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford. Now it's time to take a look at what's been in the news this month. And I'm joined once again by regular Naked Astronomy guest Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. Robert, what's caught your eye? Well, I think probably one of the most captivating announcements was the one around the spacecraft Voyager 1. Now, Voyager 1 was a mission that was launched right back in 1977 along with its sister ship, Voyager 2. And it's one of only a few spacecraft that explored the outer solar system, so it travelled out from Earth, out past the asteroid belt, past Jupiter and Saturn, and then it set off on what was called its interstellar mission. In other words, knowing that it was just going to carry on, not encounter any planets after that, and head right out of the solar system, which is exactly what it's been doing ever since. How many spacecraft are there that have achieved this escape velocity from the solar system? Well, there's only uh, five. The two Voyager spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, Voyager 2 is slightly behind Voyager 1, and the two Pioneer spacecraft that were launched even earlier in the uh, early 1970s, Pioneer 10 and 11, both of which have now shut down and we no longer get any signals from them. And then there's the New Horizons spacecraft, which is traveling out to Pluto. It'll get there in a couple of years' time, and that will then head out to the solar system as well. But Voyager 1 is not only the one that's furthest from the sun, it's also the one that's traveling the fastest. So there's no way the other spacecraft will catch up with it. And it's quite incredible that this technology from 30, 40 years ago is still able to send signals that we can detect. I have to say that you have to hand it to the engineers. I mean, these are probes that were conceived in the 1960s built using the technology of the late 1960s and early 1970s because what you don't tend to do is install the very latest technology in spacecraft just before they launch because you want it to be tried and tested rather than you know, throwing something novel up there. And they're still going. They've been going strong. They've sent back remarkable images over decades. Now, you know, it's the case that we don't really have working cameras on these spacecraft anymore because it doesn't make a lot of sense. They're so far from the sun, there isn't actually that much to see uh, just using that kind of detector. But they sent back stunning images of Jupiter and Saturn and actually also Uranus and Neptune and their moons, their satellites. And so we understand a lot more about the outer solar system than we did at the time they were launched when all you had to go on were rather more primitive telescopes than we enjoy today. I mean, it's a sort of salutary thought that if you look at the professional images of Jupiter and Saturn made by telescopes in the early 1970s. Today's amateurs using much smaller equipment because of the advances in technology and sensors can get better ones. And you know, more or less the same thing has happened with spacecraft as well. I mean, the 
microbes that followed Voyager out to Jupiter and Saturn. So Galileo and Cassini sent back images in much more detail for the, the very same reason. I have to say one thing I was slightly sceptical about when I saw this story. We've seen this reported several times before that people have thought Voyager's getting close to the edge of the solar system. What's yeah, new it, this time? It's, it's a really difficult thing to define. Strictly speaking, Voyager hasn't actually left the solar system. If you take a purist view, then it doesn't leave the solar system until it's travelled beyond the Oort cloud of comets, and that's way, way out from where the probe is now. These are these cometary nuclei. But Voyager is certainly beyond the region where the majority of the sun's influence is. I mean, the force of gravity from the sun extends out to infinity, as does the light of the sun. But what it's done now is crossed a point called the heliopause, at least we think it has, where the influence of the wind of particles from the sun drops dramatically. And so instead of being dominated by the sun, its surroundings are dominated by what's going on between the stars, the so-called interstellar medium. And that's really interesting because what we're doing then for the first time is sampling interstellar space. To give you an idea, it's 121 astronomical units from the sun. That's 121 times as far away as the Earth is from the sun, or about 19 billion kilometres. Now, Voyager 1 is a long way from the sun, but some people are being even more ambitious and talking about travelling to other stars. I gather the RES has got a meeting to discuss how that might be possible. You're right. There's a, there's a meeting called Starship Century taking place at the RAS in a few weeks' time. And this was set up a couple of years ago. It's an initiative of actually science fiction writers and scientists. So you've got people like Martin Rees involved and Stephen Hawking, uh, Freeman Dyson, respectable uh, scientists, as well as the science fiction authors like Greg Benford, which are equally respectable in their way as well. But their aim is to kind of imagine and envision the kind of technologies, the kind of things you would do with a starship. And they're tied up with DARPA, which is the defense research organization in the U.S. that's funding them for this advanced concept idea to think about how you might develop a ship that can travel to other stars over the next century or so. So they're not expecting results anytime soon. Clearly, all of them will be dead by the time, or they're very likely to be dead by the time this becomes a reality. But the aim is to capture the imagination of people. Think about how we might do it, what we might do, where we might go, the kind of objects that you'd like to go and see first if you could travel to other stars. And, you know, if you look at the nearest space beyond the sun, then there are a number of objects like Tor Ceti, for example, or some of the other stars that we know to have, I wouldn't say Earth-like, but planets that might be habitable. Those are the obvious targets. The problem at the moment is it would take at the very least tens of thousands of years. I mean, it would take about 80,000 years to travel to Alpha Centauri if you travel at the speed that Voyager's going. If you want to travel these more distant objects, you'd be looking at hundreds of thousands of years. So until you can find a way of reducing that time a great deal, we're not likely to be going there anytime soon. But maybe in a century's time, this will be more conceivable. How far have people got in talking about the technology that might be used in these missions? As you hinted there, the technology is quite a long way off. It's really speculative. I mean, there have been loads and loads of ideas, and it's been discussed probably almost since the invention of the first rockets right back in the, I shouldn't say the first rockets, the Chinese were doing that, but the first liquid-fueled rockets and the concept of sending things into space in the, the early 20th century. But there are various ideas. I mean, people have talked about using a series of exploding nuclear weapons on a pusher plate to shove a ship through space. That's obviously a rather probably a dangerous thing you want if you try and launch it from the surface of the Earth. Maybe you could assemble something like this in space. They've talked about using uh, solar sails or star sails powered by laser beams from the vicinity of the Earth. But all of these things are 
either difficult or require vast amounts of energy or both. And to get up to the sort of speeds where you could travel to stars in a matter of years rather than thousands of years, you need a vast amount of energy. And that at the moment is the biggest problem. We just don't have the kind of sources or at least an ability to capture them easily that would allow us to make that kind of voyage. A bit closer to home, one development we have had in rocket technology in the past few weeks is the launch of the Cygnus Antares cargo ship to the International Space Station. Well, that's right. This is the commercial vehicle Antares Cygnus 1. It's not the only private operator, by the way, that are engaging with this. There's SpaceX as well and Elon Musk have been sending missions as well. But we've seen this big shift in the way that access to low Earth orbit, if you like, the low-hanging fruit of space exploration is taking place. So if you look back 20 years, what you would have found is that it was all being done by national agencies like NASA, the European Space Agency, ESA, JAXA, the Japanese agency, and so on. What you have now, because of technological advances and better access to resources and so on, is private sector operators is taking this forward. So this, the Orbital Sciences Corporation, who are responsible for this particular launch, and Antares and the, the rocket and the Cygnus-1 mission above it, are the latest operator in this field. And that has actually signed a contract with them, taking them forward to 2016 to do eight real missions. The significance of what happened uh, last week was that they launched a mission to the space station for the first time. They actually had successful launches of their rocket, but this is one that will carry the cargo up there. It's a demonstration mission. It will take real supplies to the astronauts up there. And it took off from Virginia. It will travel up to the space station over a few days. As it gets closer, it starts to maneuver autonomously, so robotically in some sense, until it gets close enough that the astronauts can grab it with a robotic arm, the, the so-called Canada arm on board, because it was built by the Canadian. And so they, they bring it to dock and then they unload it. It actually takes a couple of weeks to unload it because there's so much stuff there and they have to, as they point out, move things around on board the space station to bring it all on board. There's about 700 kilos of stuff, so quite a lot. Then after that, they load it with their junk. About a ton of stuff goes back into it. I guess you still build up a, quite a bit of junk if you stay on board a uh, space station or, for that matter, in a house for a number of years. And then they send that back down to Earth and it burns up over the Pacific. So it's really a significant step in this. I guess what you'll see, I suspect, is that more of this private sector access to low Earth orbit. I think going on to the moon and beyond is a bigger step again. But it's very interesting to see this evolving. That you know, This now seems to be becoming more routine. Robert, thank you very much. That was Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. Back now to the European Planetary Science Congress, and a couple of talks about the Moon particularly caught my eye. Over the past decade, our nearest celestial companion has been the destination for a number of spacecraft which have been designed to test out new propulsion and communication systems, which might one day be sent further afield on higher-cost missions. I met up with Bernard Frank, who was the principal investigator on the European Space Agency's Smart One mission, which launched in 2003. Well, we are celebrating 10 years of the launch of Smart One on the 27th of September. We were around the moon from 2004 to 2006. We had a control impact at the end. And then we have put all the data obtained from the different instruments on board, miniaturized instruments, available for the community. So what sensors did Smart One have on board? So Smart One, we had seven very miniaturized instruments for a total of 19 kilograms, building on the miniaturization technologies. We had a camera the size of a human eye, which was building on some of this mobile phone development at that time. We had also the first infrared spectrometer on the moon, 
that could measure the fingerprint of minerals. And also we had some technology experiment in radio wave to increase telecommunication for the future. Finally, we had also a laser communication experiment on smart one. So some of this technology was from mobile phones. Was this mission about testing out the technology or really about learning about the environment of the moon? The main goal for Smart One was to be a technology mission, first testing a new engine, an ion engine that is five times more efficient than chemical propulsion. And uh, that allowed us to go to the moon, but we'd be used also on future missions to Mercury, also to asteroids, to reach deep space destination using much less fuel, so giving the possibility to have more payload or to launch from a smaller rocket. But also, we wanted to test miniaturized technologies, spacecraft technologies that will lower the cost and the risk for future missions. So if I remember rightly, the key with Nine Drive is that you're using electrical energy that you can generate with solar panels rather than having to carry bulky rocket fuel up into space. That's right. You use the solar power. From this, you can charge and accelerate some particles of gas, xenon, and then with smart one, with only 60 liters of fuel, we could bring a 300 kilogram spacecraft to the moon. So I said, much more efficient than my car. And this can be used for mission if you are patient enough, because this is a very low thrust. And so we got a Guinness Award for the most efficient engine, but also for the longest travel to the moon. It took us 18 months to reach the moon. So the key here is that the moon is our close companion. It's a good place to test these technologies before you send them further afield. Yeah, it's a place where we could test those technologies for deep space, but also it's a beautiful place for knowledge. And so we wanted to use this instrument using the moon as well as an history book to understand the bombardment history in the solar system, also using the moon to understand planetary processes that are shaping planets like tectonics, volcanism. As the moon has a vitinous atmosphere, its geology is pristine. So you can really study the geology of the moon much better you could do it on Mars or the Earth. You mentioned earlier that Smart One had a controlled impact with the moon at the end of its life. What did you learn from that? Control impact first was a technical achievement because we were able to target an impact within half a second of the planned time. Also, we were able to communicate to ground-based observers on the Earth at the time of impact, and we were able to observe it from the Canada France-Hawaii telescope, and for the first time, we observed the flash impact and some of the debris plumes from the Smart One impact. So it was a kind of impact experiment. I made a challenge to all the missions that followed us. I would offer them a bottle of champagne if they would be able to find the impact site of Smart One which is expected to be 10 meters in size. And what we are going to do at this conference here, we are going to unveil some study we have done on the latest images from the LRO, high resolution camera, where we believe we have identified the impact site for Smart One. So in those lunar reconnaissance orbital images, you think you've seen this 10-meter crater that Smart One generated? Yeah, we have a very good candidate that fits into the position where we expected the impact. However, it doesn't look exactly as we were expecting. We have a conducted laboratory experiment with the impact of projectile on sand, and we would excavate the sand. In the case of the moon, 
we found that also we created some borders debris. So have the LOA scientists got their bottle of champagne yet? Actually, we did the work ourselves using the LRO data. But of course, we are going to share this bottle of champagne with our LRO colleagues. Bernard Frank from ESTEC, the European Space Agency's technical headquarters in the Netherlands. Now, we've still got Kirsten Goshtalk with us. And Kirsten, I gather you had a bit of a party last week. We did. We have a great project here in Perth called the Skynet, where you can download little chunks of our astronomy data and help us process them on your computer. And the Skynet turned two years old last week. So we relaunched with a brand new website and heaps of great new features. So if you're out there and you're interested in getting involved in astronomy, then the Skynet is a really great option. And what are people helping you to do with their computers? At the moment, we have two projects going. We have our original project, which is a source finder. So we have radio astronomy data being sent out to everyone's computers and they're processing it to find where all of the galaxies and radio sources are and then sending back coordinates to us. And then we have a new project that we actually launched last week as part of our second birthday where you download galaxy images to your computer from telescopes around the world, including the PanStars telescope in Hawaii. And you process those images for a whole lot of different things. That My favourite, though, is we process them to work out where the stars are forming, so where all the new stars are in that galaxy. And then you send back a picture of the galaxy that is brighter where there's new stars and dimmer where there's not new stars. Now, one thing that surprised me... I remember running the SETI at Home project on my computer about 15 years ago, and it involved downloading small packets of data, and then your computer would chunk at that data for about three hours and send the results back. But radio astronomers talk about the absolutely vast amounts of data that come out of telescopes. Is that a problem now with projects like this? It is. It is. Unfortunately, we do have a lot of data. And if you were to run the Skynet for us using our Source Finder project and you just set it at Unlimited, it would download a few gigabytes a week from us. And that's obviously quite a lot if you've got an internet plan that doesn't have that many gigabytes a month. So you can actually set up a data limiter on the Skynet that says, I only want to download one gigabyte a month or I only want to download 100 megabytes a month. And that just makes sure that we don't go over your internet plan. But every little bit counts, even if you can only process 10 megabytes of our data, that's 10 megabytes that wouldn't be processed otherwise. So any little bit that people can donate helps us out. How big a resource is this? I know you've got supercomputers in Perth that you're using, the Pawsey Centre, for example. Is this bigger than that? It's not bigger than the Pawsey Centre yet, but we're hoping to get bigger than the Pawsey Centre. So the Pawsey Centre is almost at the petaflop region, I think, of processing, so quite a powerful supercomputer. At the moment, actually today, the Skynet is running at almost 45 teraflops. So a factor of 100 lower than Pawsey, but it's still, in its own right, a very good computer, a very good supercomputer that we've built. And moving ahead, obviously, the SKA is what everyone's looking forward to in five, ten years' time. Do you think projects like this will be involved in reducing the data from telescopes like the SKA? I think definitely. I don't think there's enough computing power on the planet to do everything that astronomers are going to want to do with the data. And so projects like the Skynet, with the help of the amazing public out there, are going to be able to accomplish things that wouldn't happen otherwise. Because there's only so many computers on the planet. There's only so much time for supercomputers for astronomy. And so all of these extra projects that might miss out can then use the amazing resource that people have just sitting doing nothing at home. And I would imagine that having the public involved also helps you 
communicate the astronomy that you're doing to a wider audience because people feel they're getting involved, they're contributing something? Well, yes, definitely. I mean, they are getting involved. On the Skynet website, you can actually go and see the images of the galaxies that you've processed and it shows you where in the image your computer has worked on and it shows you the results. So it shows you straight away right there what your computer has found about where the stars are forming, where the dust is, where the galaxy is heaviest. So it's not only about communicating more about our science, because obviously we're really excited by it. We think we're doing amazing stuff and we like to share that. But it's also showing people what their computer has done in in what way they have made a real difference in contribution. And if people want to get involved, where can they go? Really easy, just to theskynet.org. Kirsten, thank you very much. Now, we heard earlier from Bernard Frank about how space agencies are using the moon as a target for experimental spacecraft to test new technology. But are there still scientific questions about the moon to be answered? Or having landed there with the Apollo missions... Have we found out much of what there is to know about its geology? Jessica Barnes is a geophysicist at the Open University, and she told me that in recent years it's become clear that there's actually much more water on the moon than was previously thought. We have a mixture of evidence. First of all, there are different reservoirs of moon water. We've got water on the surface, which has been detected by spectrometers in orbit about the moon since the late 1990s, And then we have evidence of water in the moon, and that mainly comes from samples that we have, which were A, brought back by the Apollo missions, and B, from lunar meteorites. You've been looking at water locked up in rock samples. Presumably those were brought back by those landing missions in the 60s and 70s. Exactly, yes. Primarily the samples that I'm looking at are the Apollo samples. Primarily Apollo 11, 12, 15, 16 and 17, and In the work that I've presented at EPSC, we're looking at rocks of the lunar crust, which are mainly sourced in the Apollo 17 collection. How easy is it to get hold of that material? I guess it's quite a limited reserve of material that NASA have to give away. Well, you'd think that, but they brought back 380 kilograms of rock and soil samples. So from a geologist's point of view, that's a lot of material. In theory, anyone can apply for samples, but you have to have good scientific reasoning. The Apollo missions all landed on fairly flat parts of the moon because it was safer. Does that mean that you've only got samples from that particular kind of geological region? In theory, yes, but because of the impacts and the way the moon has been cratered, it means that material has been shoved around the moon so we can't actually pinpoint exactly where it came from but we have a fair idea due to their chemical composition. So is the water content of these rocks fairly consistent between different rock types? Firstly our group at the Open University is investigating a specific kind of mineral it's a calcium phosphate mineral called apatite and we're looking at apatite throughout all the different Apollo missions and also the different rock types. So one person in our group, Dr. Roman Tartes, is investigating the mare basalts. They're showing much wetter compositions of water, so up to thousands of parts per million water, whereas the rocks that I'm looking at are rocks of the crust formed by different geological processes, and they're proving to be drier than the rocks formed by volcanism, essentially, on the moon. So is that because those rocks have dried out or is it because they formed at different times from different material? The latter, I think. The rocks that we're looking at of the lunar crust, 
those rocks are thought to have formed anywhere between 4.44 billion years ago to 4.3 billion years ago. So these are very old rocks. The other rocks, the Mare basalts, are formed by volcanism, thought to have been much later. They're dated anywhere between 3.9 and 3.1 billion years. So the water we're measuring, and I should mention, in Appetite we're measuring hydroxyl, which is OH, and then we extrapolate to water to work out how much water is in the magmas. But the reservoirs that those two different types of rocks are sampling are thought to be different. And how we can tell that they're different is due to their hydrogen isotopic composition, which is another thing that we measure on our instrument. So the crust is older than this volcanic rock you've been looking at. How has that come about? Well, it's thought from early analyses of the Apollo samples that we have this thing called a lunar magma ocean soon after the moon accreted. So basically, you've got a small core and everything else is molten. And from that molten sea, plagioclase feldspar, so a light, low-density mineral, crystallizes and then floats to the surface. And that's what forms initially a veneer and then later the lunar crust. Almost like an orange, you've got a small crust around the outside, which is formed very early on, and then everything else solidifies from that crust. So the moon was mostly molten at that time, but it had these solid lumps of rock floating on the surface of that magma. Very early on, yes, and then slowly that built up a crust. And then how did those different kinds of rock end up with different water content? That's the most interesting part of what we're looking at. So in each of the samples, when we're looking at appetite, we can measure the hydrogen isotopic signature of the water, and that allows us to pinpoint a source region in our solar system. Different objects in our solar system tend to have different hydrogen isotopic compositions, So that almost allows us to fingerprint where the hydrogen in the appetite has come from. And what's emerging is that most of the samples of the lunar crust show a signature very similar to water we see on Earth. This is in difference to what we see in the basalts, which are formed later. These are the volcanic rocks? Those are the volcanic rocks, so the mare basalts, the glasses. It's thought due to their water compositions that they actually formed from a late addition of water by asteroids. So if you imagine the moon formed, the crust, only a few impacts on the surface, and then later you have more impacts which actually pierce that crust and deliver water into the interior of the moon. And that's where we think the water locked up in the volcanic rocks actually came from. There's long been a debate about where the water on the Earth came from, whether that arrived in the form of comets soon after the Earth formed. Presumably knowing where water on the Moon came from is also telling you about our own planet. Potentially, yes, but there are still debates on how our Moon formed. So I think we can go as far as saying the signature of lunar water is increasingly becoming apparent that it's more Earth-like. But with regard to how the Moon formed itself that's still in debate but we can learn a lot about earth's history and what was happening in the solar system early on from rocks of the moon because they're much older generally than anything we have on earth so from a geological point of view it's fascinating and with all the new technology we have available now we're finding out things about the moon like the water content of rocks which you couldn't do in the apollo era because the technology wasn't available or it wasn't accurate enough 
Jessica Barnes, who's a PhD student at the Open University in Milton Keynes. Now, Derek McComiskey has got in touch. He listened to August Snake Astronomy podcast, where we spoke to scientists at the Lund Observatory who are working on the Gaia Space Telescope. In that podcast, Leonard Lindegren and David Hobbs explained that Gaia is designed to measure the distances to stars by observing how much they wobble back and forth in the sky as the Earth circles around the Sun each year. But what Derek's wondering is what stationary reference point could be used to detect these small wobbles. Now, Kirsten Goshchalk is still with us. Kirsten, what do you think? So obviously nothing in the sky is going to be perfectly stationary. If we could measure where things were to absolute accuracy, everything would have a parallax because everything has a distance away from us. But there are some very distant objects that astronomers turn to when they want to make parallax measurements called quasars. And they are very, very small, compact sources of radio waves that are very bright. So when we observe them, even over the baseline that you would have been hearing about in the August podcast, from one side of the Earth's orbit to the other side of the Earth's orbit, they remain stationary as closely as we can measure. So astronomers would use them as their background source. And so then they would be able to work out some very, very distant stars. And then Gaia would use those distant stars that we have proven to be very distant by this quasar parallax method, because Gaia obviously can't detect radio waves because it's got CCDs instead of a radio telescope up there. So what's unique about these quasars is that they're very distant. So we don't imagine they're going to move anytime soon. But they're also so incredibly bright that we can actually see them across these vast distances. Exactly right. It's rare to find an object that's both very, very compact and small, so it's not very big, so we can measure it if it does move a little bit, that is bright enough and distant enough that we don't see any parallax to it. So they're very special objects that make this possible. My thanks to Kirsten Goshtalk, who's based at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth, Western Australia. That's all we've got time for this month, but as always, you can find out more on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Dominic Ford, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council.